Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Rachel Webster. Rachel is a former primary school teacher who is taking on the role of a primary maths specialist with the White Rose Maths Hub from September. Now, the reason I wanted to interview Rachel is that for many years, I don't feel I've been teaching each new crop of year sevens as well as I could have done. Dylan William has said that one of the most important things for a teacher to know is where their learners are at. And I have made the mistake of pretty much assuming these year sevens know very little about maths. I've introduced concepts such as fractions, factors, ratio and algebra as if they'd never seen them before. Perhaps just as importantly, I was never sure exactly what these year sevens will be expecting math lessons to be like based on their prior experiences. Now, just in case any other teachers out there want to know a bit more about the mathematical background of their year sevens, I thought it would be worthwhile having an experienced primary maths teacher such as Rachel on the show. And I tell you what, thank goodness I did because it proved to be an absolute cracker. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. Rachel takes us through the planning and delivery of a Year 6 lesson on percentages, explaining the format and content of the lesson, and I learn all about steps to success. We look at how Rachel differentiates. I ask how maths teaching at primary school has changed over the last few years. We discuss the content and difficulty of the work students will have covered in year six. We look at year six students' experience at solving problems. Are year six students used to explicit instruction? Why is growth mindset so important? What kind of homeworks would students be set? If it was up to Rachel, what would the first few lessons of year seven maths look like? And what advice does she have for year seven teachers? What are the best transition practices she's seen? And then the big one that I almost flipping forgot, the role of manipulatives and equipment. What are students used to using? I'll tell you what, if you've got year sevens at all this year, or if you have any influence over your school's transition policy, then hopefully you'll agree with me that this will prove an invaluable listen. I know it will change how I approach my teaching, and I will reflect on that during my takeaway at the end of the interview. The usual desperate plea to give me a rating and a quick review on iTunes if you have a spare minute. And thank you so, so much for those of you who have and the incredibly kind words you've written. Your fivers will be in the post. It genuinely means the world to me to find that people find these interviews somewhere near as useful as I find them. So thank you so much. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Rachel Webster. Apologies in advance that the sound quality is a little ropey at times. I'm blaming on the fact that Rachel is, as you'll hear from her accent, clearly from the wrong side of the Pennines, and the Yorkshire folk are not quite as advanced technologically as us Lancastrians. Despite this, we got on surprisingly well. I really hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. I am sure you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Rachel, we are going to start the interview as we always do with the math speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? 
Okay, my favourite number is 18. Um, basically, just because it's my birthday and because it signifies that you're an adult when you turn 18. <laughs> nice. I like it. It's the first time we've had a nice, simple, straightforward answer for a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with that, Rachel. Yeah, you're on my way of thinking straight away. <laughs> Um, and can I ask you as well, uh, second question, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, as, as a child, I don't actually remember being taught through topics as such. It was very much workbook based. Right. Um, Scottish primary maths, I remember. Um, you started at page one on day one and you just worked your way through. <laughs> um, but I did like, I always liked mental maths. Um, I like that challenge of having to work things out quickly and think on your feet. Got it. And was there any part of maths that you particularly didn't like? Didn't like long division because I just didn't get it. Couldn't do it. Didn't understand the process. Oh, that's interesting. And are you a fan of long division now? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's very interesting. Fantastic. Well, uh, speed dating question number three then, Rachel. What job would you like to do if you weren't a teacher? Um, something creative, I think, something like interior designing, something like that. I love sort of decorating the house and picking out, you know, colours, fabrics, things like that. So I think, yeah, designing, interior designing would be that. Super, fantastic. Um, well, this is um, a first on the on the Mr. Barton Maths podcast because we've had secondary school maths teachers before. We've had people who aren't teachers, but you are our first ever primary school teacher. Oh, actually. wow. So I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a background um, in your career. Um, uh-huh. for, pick, pick it up from wherever you want and just tell us um, how you got to where you are today. Okay. Um, I started life as a teaching assistant um, a long time ago. <laughs> Um, and I just did that for a year just to confirm that I definitely wanted to go into teaching. Uh, Realised I did. Uh, then I did a BA for four years um, at Bradford. Um, once I qualified, I went straight into a post at school in Pudsey, a fantastic school. Predominantly worked in year one and year two there. I think once you get into year two, you're pretty much stuck. <laughs> Um, with what, the SATs why is that sorry Rachel I think once you're in year two and you've had all the SATs training and same with year six I think as well once you've had all the SATs training and you, you're okay with it all and you know what you're doing you seem to be in there then for, for quite a long time Good. I found uh, which I enjoyed I loved being in year two um Stayed at Primrose Hill, it was called, for eight years, and then I moved to my um, next school uh, for a promotion. I um, had a TLR there for maths and English, so quite a tall order, (laughs) uh, leading both subjects on my own. Um, I also moved straight, I went into year two there as well. Um, did about maybe two, three years in year two and then moved up to year four and then just continued moving up to year six, um, where I am now. Um, and then I've actually just got myself a new job. I moved, uh, I've left my current school and I'm moving to work for the White Rose Hub in September. So doing maths all the time and uh, that is my passion so yeah it's pretty much my dream job starting in September. Got it fantastic and that that's interesting that so you, you've really had a kind of sense of the the, the full teaching the full range at, at primary school and do you yeah. have a do you have a preference of which year group you like teaching? Um, 
Yeah, I would never, ever go back now to Key Stage 1. Um, I, I didn't think I'd like Key Stage 2, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and I have really, really enjoyed Year 6. I do, I like the structure of it. I like, um, I, I don't say I like the pressure, but it, I, I sort of do. I like that, that you know what you're aiming for with the sats and um, you, you're working towards that goal at the end of the year. Um, so probably, yeah, high-end key stage two is my preference, year five and six, I would say. Got it. Superb. Um, well, th- this is the bit, bit of the show where I ask my guests to describe a lesson, and I'm absolutely fascinated um, to hear your answer on this, Rachel. So um, in an ideal world, if you can pick a year six lesson, that'd be superb. Um, and if you can just give us the context of the class and go into as much detail as you possibly can about the planning process and then what the lesson looks like. And I'll be annoying and I'll inter- interrupt you at various points. Yeah. So just, just take us through it, please, Rachel. Yeah, I think whatever the lesson it's the same process um so i've kind of in my notes i've sort of talked through what my planning process would be not necessarily on a specific lesson but this would be the same process that i do every day every week um so we use the white rose hub schemes of work so that is my first part of call um and Whatever the topic, I would do some sort of pre-assessment on the Friday beforehand. So I've got an idea of where the kids are, what sort of understanding we're, we're going with. Um, and what, what would that pre-assessment look like, Rachel? Um, it basically is a test. Um, it would have on there some fluency questions, reasoning, problem solving. And it would also have some reference to the vocabulary being used as well. So getting the children to define a word. So, for example, if I'm doing percentage, I would expect them to tell me what percent actually means and write a definition of that word. And this is for um, for the topic that's coming up the next week. Is that right? This is yes. a, a, essentially a pretest. And would you be would there be questions on there that you would um, not expect them to, to know and get right? Um, um, or, or is this all stuff that they will have met at some point in the past? And this is almost you want to just get a sense of what they can remember, if that makes it, sense. It's a bit of both, to be honest. Um, I would kind of look at a test that I would use at the end of the topic um, and then make my own based on that. So there would be things that I'd expect them to know, um, such as, you know, how to work out 10% of a number or something. But then there'd be ones on there, the reasoning ones that expected them to think a little bit more deeply that, that wouldn't have come across necessarily before. So it's sort of that challenge to see if they know how to tackle it. Got it. And can I also ask as well that the format of this test, is it uh, kids sat in silence doing it for kind of 10 or 15 minutes? And, and how is it marked as well? Um, it is in year six, pretty much every week they are doing at least one sitting down test in silence on their own. Um, and they just really get used to that from the start of the year. Um, it would be marked together then. So we'd go through it together. Uh, they'd mark their own um, and we'd, we'd talk through the answers a little bit but not in a great deal because obviously the, last, uh, the teaching is then coming up the following week um, so yeah pretty much it got yeah, it te- Fan- te- Fantastic. And are you then taking those papers in and having a quick look over the weekend to, to inform your planning or have you already got a sense yes. of it? I've, I've already 
I'd got a sense. Um, the, the class that I've had this year, I've had them for three years running. <laughs> so I have got quite a good understanding of their knowledge anyway. Um, but it, it's obviously as you come across new topics, they might not have seen it for a year or so. So um, it is about um, me taking the papers away and just it confirms really what I know already usually. And I can sort of, you know, look at them, group them roughly based on what they know. So from there then, I would go back then to the White Rose um, schemes of work and I'd take a particular objective or say, say it was percentage, I'd look at what I needed to achieve at the end of the week in percentage and then I'd break that down into small steps. Um, so I'd sort of then pick out um, an objective then for each day for the following week. Um, and then um, from there, yeah, just sort of each day I would start with some sort of fluency questions, some sort of fluency problems, and then move into some reasoning and problem solving within the day, to be fair. Um, the end. Can I ask, sorry to interrupt, Rachel, can I ask how many, how, how many maths lessons do you have a week? At five. Five, and how long do they last? An hour. An hour, perfect. And Actually, an hour and, depending on the day, it's sort of an hour and 20 minutes. Got it, uh, got it. Or an hour, yeah. And you've essentially, is it is it the case that it's pretty much one objective from the scheme of work per week that you've got to get through? Or is, would that be would that be about right? Or is, does it does it really depend? Yeah, so for example, I'm looking at this, I've got, I've just pulled it up in front of me. So the, the percentage is one. Uh, by the end of the week, they've got to be able to solve problems involving the calculation of percentages and use percentages for comparison. So that would last me, yeah, a week. So I'd then break that down into smaller steps. So looking at finding the percentage of a number um, and then a quantity and then looking at how to find percentage change as we move through the week. So it, it's, it's moving them towards that national curriculum objective by the end of the week. Or if it goes over two, it goes over two. There's no sort of, we've got to do this this week and that's it. We're moving on next week. I'd, I'd, for them to get that deep understanding, if it takes a little bit longer than a week, then I would spend longer than a week on, on one particular objective. Got it. Super. Fantastic. Well, let, let's look at one of those individual lessons then, Rachel. So so talk me through, how does the lesson start? Um, so they come in, same routine every day. They come in, grab the books. We have prepared steps to success for them to stick in the books um, so they come in stick that in and there might be sort of a little bit of a warm-up task it might sometimes it's it is related to what we're going to do but other times it might just be just to get the brain into maths gear because um, it's first thing on a morning I always do maths first thing on a morning um, and then it's sort of a quick register straight into the lesson we usually can i can i interrupt you there just a couple of things what what are the steps to success rachel what would they be right so um steps to success are it has at the top we are learning to whatever that may be find percentage of a of a number and then it would break down then what steps they have to go through in order to find the percentage of the number by the end of the lesson so it's almost like um, like a checklist for them um, to go through. You know, they might have five or six steps within the lesson. 
um, to go through, and then they tick those off at the end to say whether they've achieved them or not. Flipping, and do they do they get these every lesson? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, flipping, and it, and it's very much a self-assessment thing where it's. Uh, that... No, no. As the children are working, myself and my teaching assistant would be flying around with a pink pen. <laughs> we tickle pink at our school. So we'd be flying around with a pink pen and going, right, they've got number one, give it a tick. They've got number two, give it a tick. Um, number three, they need a bit of work on. That's green <laughs> as a target. Um, so we're very much marking on the spot, uh, but the children are self-assessing as well. The sort of thing. And they're very much, they know that routine. They're very much into the routine. They... Um, you do have the danger, though, that they just tick it, whether they've done it or not. <laughs> um, but what we've to get away from that, what they have to do is they have to then evidence that in within their work. So say, for example, step number one was to tell me what percent meant. They'd have to then write a number one next to that explanation within the book. Do you see what I mean? So I do, to, yeah. Flip. They've got to find the evidence within their piece of work to prove that they've done it as well. Jeez, this is this is fascinating. This and these um, the, these steps to success are they are they something that uh, the, your school or is it the the White Rose Mass Club that have come up with? And are um, they are they written are they written in a kind of student friendly way that they can understand? Because I often feel that's the problem with some of these objectives that I don't yeah. have a flipping clue what they mean, let alone let alone yeah. the kids. So how, how do you get around that issue? Um, no, they are done by us. Well, by me. Uh, we. Every teacher, you know, whatever their lesson is, they have to produce steps to success for that lesson. Um, and they are in child-friendly language. Um, they do sort of increase in difficulty. So the first couple on the steps would be based around fluency. Um, then you'd have maybe a couple based around reasoning and then some sort of problem solving is, is the challenge one at the bottom. Um, but yeah, they're not... You don't just pick them up off the internet anywhere. They, they are generated by us, it, and it is quite time-consuming. And are you um, are you doing these for other subjects as well, like English yeah. and all? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Flipping excellent. And the kids, just to reiterate, every single lesson, the kids are getting these steps to success. Yeah. Um, so they know what's coming up during that lesson. And is yeah. it the case that if for whatever reason they don't, you don't cover everything, um, kids may come back to these the next lesson or whatever. And, yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. F fantastic. And the other thing that you mentioned there was was just this kind of starter that may not be necessarily related to the, the current lesson. Would you just give us a little example of what, what that might entail, please, Rachel? Um, so if it was one that didn't link to the lesson, you know, if it's one that they just come in and get on with, um, it might be one where it's literally like one that I put up, it's um, each letter of the alphabet and each letter of the alphabet has got a value, £1.50 or whatever, um, and then they've got to work out the cost of their favourite food or something. Got it. Um, so it literally is, you know, just some mental math just to get them in the math zone sort of thing. Got it. And the other thing, and sorry, the other thing I forgot to ask as well, just when these kids are coming in, how are these sat? Is this, do they, is it groups? Is it rows? Oh, What's um, your... mixed, ability, mixed ability groups now. Um, this is something I've, I've come away from. Um, I did always have ability groups. Um, and I've been doing a lot of reading around growth mindset and 
um, decided this year to go with the mixed abilities um, and it has really, really worked. Um, so they just basically sit, they, they don't sit anywhere, they, they choose where they sit at the beginning of a half term and then they sit there for maybe the half term and if there's any key characters that I think I don't want to sit next to each other, I will move them. But the idea behind that was it was their choice and um, it was just letting them be a little bit more independent um, about where they sit in the room and where they feel comfortable in the room and who they feel comfortable sitting with. Um, and in terms of it being mixed abilities, one of the most powerful things that I found right at the beginning of the year, um, I had put them in, in mixed ability groups myself because it was the first day. Uh, and one of the little boys who's traditionally always been in the bottom group, um, he came in and he looked at his group and he went, oh, I must be smart now because I'm so <laughs> so who was obviously always in the top group. Um, and that was, that sort of really hit home to me. I thought that little boy has thought that he will always be in that labelled as that bottom group. Um, and his confidence this year has grown so much. Um, and he has been accessing the same learning as everybody else, whereas previously I might have thought, oh, it's a bit too hard for him, you know, I'll give him something a bit easier or sit a teaching assistant with that group. Um, and it's just not been like that at all this year, and it's really, really worked. Flipping. Um, I mean, I could literally talk to you all day about mixed ability. Um, but let, let, me just, let, let me just ask you this, Rachel. Has there been any... what? What have been some of the some of the difficulties, if any, that you found with with mixed ability compared to the uh, ability groupings you may have had in the past? Um. Well, yeah, I suppose. Right. So within a lesson, it might be that we're, we're all, and by the way, we're all working through the same activities at the same time. So no matter what the child's ability, we all start at the same point. Um, so the idea is that within five to ten minutes I want them to be getting on with something independently and then that gives me a chance then to move around and think right who's getting it who's not getting it and so on and so I have found that some of the lower ability ones who traditionally would have been in the lower ability group might not be um, catching on to something as quick or that they might have got a little bit of a gap in the knowledge and they need a little bit of a boost so Maybe about 10 minutes into the lesson, maybe 15 minutes into the lesson, I'll say, right, everybody stop. Um, Self-assess where you think you are. Is there anyone now? Be honest. Anyone who's really struggling? And we just have this um, sort of honesty policy. And if they're really struggling, they'll put their hand up. Um, and if I might say then to them, right, you're going to go out for five minutes and they have like an immediate then intervention with a TA or if it, it might be as a group, it might be one-to-one. They go out, they have that immediate intervention just to pull them back up um, and then they come back and, and join in with the lesson sort of wherever we're up to. Um, sometimes I found with that is that they might end up being out for the rest of the lesson, um, which is obviously fine. They needed that input, um, but then they're needing a little bit more catching up then throughout the rest of the day in order to start the next day at the same position as everybody else. Got it. Um, Got it. But, but it, does, it, does, it works. It does really, really work. And we have then um, on an afternoon, same day intervention as well. So anybody then who's not quite at the stage I want them to be, 
they will then have extra mass, if you like, then in the afternoon to, to bring them up to where I want them to be for the following morning. So we're all ready to go again at the same point next day. Flipping excellent. Same day intervention. And who's who's doing that intervention, Rachel? Um, teaching assistant. Um, or I've been, well, I've been very lucky this year. With it being year six, had quite a lot of resources thrown at me as in staff. So on an afternoon... Um, the deputy head came in and taught the class so that I could do some of the interventions as well on an afternoon. Um, so there was two of us, you know, working solidly on those children, getting them up to speed, ready for the next day. Got it. Fantastic. So th- th- this is fascinating, this, Rachel. So we're at the stage in the lesson where um, they've come in, they've got the steps to success, they've done their starter, you've done the register. What, what, hap- what happens next? Then we'd have a general introduction, um, look at key vocabulary, um, start sort of building up our working wall, so putting things up there um, to support the, the learning throughout the week. You'll, um, you'll, have to, you'll have to tell me more about this working wall, Rachel. You, you, you dro- you're dropping in all these things here. I love it. So I've got these <laughs> steps to success. I'm all over those now. What, what's, what's me working wall? Working wall basically is a blank display board, if you like. Um, and at the beginning of the week, I put up there what the objective is for the week, and as the week goes along, we put things up there that are going to support our learning throughout the week. So if it's this percentage that I keep talking about, we'd have the word up there, we'd have the definition up there, we'd have 100 squares with um, different amounts of boxes shaded and then what percentage that represents and um, maybe some, then we'd have some fractions up there and what the equivalent percentages are but that would build up throughout the week as we as we cover it so it's not a ready-made display that's put up on a Monday and it's just there for the week it's that me and the children build it up so it's not polished or anything you know it's bits of scrappy paper stick it up and uh, so that they've got it there to refer to then uh, as we go through the week's learning got it and is it made up of kind of stuff you write and also examples of the kids works and stuff or, or yeah, is it... It, it it literally is you know as i say sometimes just scraps of paper you know oh or i'll say oh hang on i like i like how you've done that in your book can you do it on a, on a sheet for me as well now okay. and then i'll stick that up on the wall or um maybe if I can see that a child's really got it and they're really flying through I'll go oh can you write me an explanation for that and we'll put it up on the wall for everybody else you know so it's it's then writing that explanation but it's giving everybody else that advantage as well because then they've got it in front of them got it fantastic right I've got I've got my working wall I've got that working down. wall again yeah. I'm, I'm all over that one as well now. right so <laughs> So you're doing the general introduction. I mean, is that very much kind of a teacher-led, um, you yes. asking questions, whole class questions? Uh, yes. And is it, again, just to really dig into the fine detail, is it kids putting their hand up volunteering or are you picking on kids or a mixture of the two? How does the actual kind of whole class questioning play out? Um, it's a bit of a mixture, really. We have something in school that we use. We subscribe to Espresso. I don't know if you've heard of Espresso. No, no, I don't think so. No, it's basically um, an online tool and you can go on there and you, for any subject across primary school, you can put in, click on Key Stage 2, click on Maths, click on Percentage and it brings up a whole range of activities, really interactive activities and things that you can use to introduce your lesson basically. 
Um, so it often starts on there with a video clip, um, something just to sort of get the children engaged in, in the topic. So we might watch a little video and then there might be an activity on there, an interactive activity um, with some questions. So it might be saying, I don't know, find 10% of um, 60 and that might be one of the questions and I say right everybody work that out in the book right let's come back together what do we think it is talk to your partner um, right once we've come to a general consensus right let's check it on the board now see if it was uh, six um, and so on um, sometimes it might be that I've prepared some screens on the interactive whiteboard and it might just simply be you know finding 10% of different amounts um, write these in your book, um, work them out on your own, five minutes, go, um, and then we'd come back together. As they're working independently, we're flying around, ticking, seeing who's got it, who hasn't, uh, and then we'd come back together as a class and just check through those. Uh, they mark their own learning at that point if we haven't. Um, it, it's lots of sort of stop-start, really. It's you know a little bit of teacher-led, something on the board, then they do it, then we check it off, uh, and then we move on. Uh, and it, it sort of works like that throughout the lesson. Got it. And can I ask as well, the um, when the kids are working independently, is it the case that they, they're in groups, so can they, can they ask the person next to them, or is it very much work in silence, put your hand up if you're stuck on something? Again, it's a bit of a mixture. Some days it will just naturally fall silent, and they just get on with it which at that point I'd be thinking usually the first couple of questions it is silent because they, they get it and they're doing yeah. it and then as the questions get a little bit harder you start to have that sort of just general chatting to each other um, and some days I will just say if you, you know ask your partner or like say put your hand up if you're not sure um, but th with the ask the partner business obviously because they're in mixed ability I'm sort of really careful that they're not just copying. Yes. So I know I know which children's target. So if there's a particular child and I think I'm not sure they've got that, uh, you know, if they've got the right answer in the book and I'm a bit suspicious, I will then say, right, I'm on, can you just explain to me how you got that answer? And, you know, it's quite easy then to figure out if they've just copied or not. Um, in those cases, if I think, hang on, they've just copied that, I'd then write another one in their book for them so that they can do a, a one independently or with me. So I can just check that they've got that understanding and not just obviously copying from the person next to them. Um, sometimes it might be a group task. I might sort of say, right, on your tables, big piece of paper. Uh, I want you to work out this particular problem. Um, first one to finish, let me know. You know, we, we sort of make it into like quizzes and things like that. Um, make it as interactive and as fun as we possibly can. Um because otherwise it is a lot of sort of practice and things in six. And uh, kind of the sense I'm getting here, Rachel, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that the it's certainly not the case that it's kind of a three-part lesson with a starter, main and plenary. Yeah. It's very much kind of broken up into these individual chunks, which may be kind of five minutes long, ten minutes yes. long. Yeah, um, and is that the case um, whether you're doing kind of a, a kind of fluency or procedural based thing like find 10% of this or whether it's a more longer form kind of conceptual problem is it still the same process that you would use a little introduction kids crack on with it for five ten minutes then bring it back as a class yeah. to, dis to discuss it through yeah definitely and within one lesson I would expect them to do um, 
some of the fluency and procedural things that we've talked about, but then I would also have, um, so as well as the steps to success on these little slips of paper <laughs> that I create, <laughs> I then also have a variety of problems, uh, of slips of paper that would expect them to reason and problem solve. And when I think they're really fluent at something, I would say, right, have a go at that now. And I give them the slip of paper and they'll have a go at something that involves a little bit more reasoning or moving into problem solving. Um, and I'd expect within the lesson, everybody to have touched on those three um, aims, really. So they'd have done some fluency, some reasoning and some problem solving within every lesson. Um, and can I ask you again, this may be me being a, a stupid secondary school teacher here right now. <laughs> what's, your different, what's, what's the difference in your opinion between those second two? What's the difference between the reasoning and the problem solving? Or well, could, you perhaps, could you perhaps give us an example to, to kind of distinguish <laughs> between the two? As I'm sat here saying, you know, we do, this is what we've done all year, the fluency, the reasoning, the problem solving, and all year we've had the same, what's the difference? Ah, what's nice. Okay, go. I don't feel quite as bad there. Go. <laughs> So it's not you. And I think because they're the aims of the national curriculum, everybody has taken that to be, right, they are three very separate and different sort of aspects. But now as we move in um, on in terms of this mastery curriculum, we've now put the reasoning and problem solving together. Got it. <laughs> not as in we as in me, I mean as a <laughs> primary Yes. Collective, if you like. So the White Rose Hub of now, as they've brought out their updated new schemes of work, they've put reasoning and problem solving together because I think people were finding that difference between the two quite tricky. Yes. I, I view it as um, the reasoning would be them having to explain something um, and the problem solving something where there's more than one answer. That's kind of my simplistic view of it um the reasoning would be expecting them to so the fluency is very much you know do it get on with it it's very procedural the reasoning more is more about the explaining something do you a lot of do you agree or disagree with this statement why prove it that kind of thing uh, and then the problem solving would be more it, it tends to have, could have more than one answer does that make yes. sense it, yes. it, it does and i wonder if just just to give us a sense um of because I'm, I'm very interested in the complexity of the kind of work that the kids are doing here yeah, so yeah. in that given lesson that you've been describing where at the start they may be finding 10 percent of, of yeah. 60 or whatever how how far would that go what, what kind of problems would the kids be or what kind of reasoning things would the kids be doing before the end of it so i've got here so to start off the fluency ones would be finding 10 percent of different amounts um, and then moving on to, OK, so if you know 10 percent, how could you work out 20 percent? Um, how would you work out 15 percent? OK, how would you work out 17.5 percent? So getting them to explain that and using what they know about working out 10 percent to find those other different percentages as well. Yeah. Um, and then it might move into something like, um, so do you agree or disagree with the statement? I've got it in front of me. To find 10%, you divide by 10, and to find 20%, you divide by 20. Do you agree or disagree? Back it up with evidence, prove it to me. Um, and I would never just let them say, yeah, I agree. I'd, or I disagree. I'd be like, why? Show me. Does it work? 
I mean, and I, is that Rachel? Is that a task that the kids would have a few minutes on their own to have a go at, then discuss with their group, and then bring it back um, as a whole class discussion? Yeah, those that I've just described—they'd be on the little sort of slips of paper. Yes, it, it wouldn't be necessarily that everybody would be working through now at the same pace. It would get to a point where some would be working on the. 20%, 15%, 17.5. Some would have moved on to the do you agree, disagree, back oh, it up yeah. with evidence, sort of statements. There might be some children then that are kind of stuck on this 15% business. So then it would be a case of, right, one, two, three, you come with over to me, we'll sit and work this through together. Um, I, I, I judge it as I go through the lesson. If I find that the whole class is struggling, I'll sort of pull them all back together and we'll work through an example all together and then I'll get them to do different examples independently. Um, and then I'd also always have some sort of greater depth um, problems as well up my sleeve. So for my really, really high flyers, they'd still go through the same process as everybody else and they'd still work through those steps. But then they'd be doing something like, for example, um, on this particular day, they were working out the percentage of time they spent lining up in the seven years at school. <laughs> Jeez, flipping yeah. heck. <laughs> yeah. I like it. And that's just what, that's something you've come up with. And that'd be on a slip of paper. And if, I'm, yeah. if, I've, if I've got this right, if you sense that they've been successful at the kind of aims and objectives um, yeah. and gone through the processes at that point in the lesson, you yeah. drop that little slip of paper in front of them and say, have a little go at that. Yeah. And then, then maybe later in the lesson, you'd come and see how they're getting on and, and kind of chat through the, how they've, how they've approached it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And oh, then yeah. we're only talking here that sort of level, two, three, four children, you know, we're not talking yes. half the class or something at, at that sort of level. Um, the majority would be just getting through the, the reasoning, the problem solving that I'd set sort of getting onto the mastery, but the, the, the handful who would be doing the greater depth challenges. Got it. Fantastic. And so if the, if the rest of the lesson proceeds in this way, how, how does the lesson end, Rachel? Um, very much just stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mine's stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, well, what I usually tend to do is I'll just give them a bit of a warning. You know, we've got a couple of minutes before we're going out. Um, sometimes it might be that I feel that we've all got to a point where we're ready to stop together and we can just maybe go through the final problem solving activity or whatever, mark it and, and move on. But nine times out of ten, we, that hasn't happened. Um, so what I get them to do at this point is I get them to self-assess against the steps to success. Um, if there's anything that they were struggling with and they need a little bit of support with or they need same-day intervention with, they put in a little sticky note sticking out of the top of the book um, and then they put that in the red basket. The red basket is like just signifies I need a bit more help. Then we've got an amber basket, well, a yellow basket, which is I need to finish something. I get it, but I need to finish it. And then the green basket is finished, sorted, get it. Um, so then they go off out to play and we, between myself and my teaching assistant, we grab the books out of the basket um, and we quickly then sort of mark them. Um, usually they are very, very honest. 
and you will find that the children in the red basket do need some intervention the children in the yellow basket get it but just need to finish green one sorted they're put away till the next day and then we would then work through those books in the red and yellow basket in the afternoon um so that everybody then by the end of the day have finished at the same point ready to move on Got it. Flipping it. That that is absolutely fascinating. That Rachel. Um, I've got about a million questions I want to ask you to dig deeper into that. But before we do, I wonder, um, just so I don't feel quite as bad about my uh, inadequate lessons now, I wonder if you could talk us through um, a lesson that you've taught that perhaps didn't go to plan, and m- more importantly, what, what did you learn from it? Um, with this this one, I can't think, and it's not because I think I'm brilliant, but I can't think of a specific one-off lesson where the whole thing's gone wrong. Um, What I would say is lessons that don't go quite as well as I expected are when I've misjudged how quickly they're going to get through things. Um, So it might be that I think, oh, we've not touched on this before. Say, for example, when we were starting algebra, and I think, right, we've not touched on this before, um this is i need to move really really slowly and they've moved quite quickly through it and i get to the point where some are more able have nothing to do (laughs) you know there's there's no more slips of paper to give them (laughs) um so i suppose from that i've just learned that i always need to have something up my sleeve um usually what i do prepare is some sort of spot the mistake type task um so you know whatever it is we've been doing I'll have prepared um as if I'm a child piece of work where I've made some mistakes and they've got to go through and spot the mistakes and correct them and explain what the child had done wrong that kind of thing um other ones where things have gone wrong are when um there's been maybe an error in a resource that I've used and I've not checked it properly yes <laughs> that there, was, there was this one in particular and the governors had come in to do a learning walk and um you know they're all moving all these governors looking at what the kids are doing and this particular task I'd given them it was it was something I'd just lifted sort of from the white rose and it was something to do with perimeter and it was something like um I don't know find the shape that doesn't have a perimeter of a certain number. I can't remember. Spot the odd one out, something like yes. that. Um, and, the, and there wasn't one. <laughs> and, I was like, and this particular governor came over and was like, I can't, I can't seem to find it. What, what, what's the answer? And I sort of very quickly realised that it could go drastically wrong. So I made out as if I'd done it on purpose. Nice. Nicely done. <laughs> and they believed me. But that's when you find that that bit of a panic of, oh, heck, I I didn't check that quite properly. Or um, there's the odd occasion where you might sort of, you know, pick up a resource from somewhere and it's impossible to work out the answer or something. Uh, So I suppose it's it's just maybe those days where you're not quite as prepared as as you should be, maybe, there when things have gone wrong. But but no massive sort of issues with things that have gone very badly wrong because I know the kids so well really now I think got it fantastic that's fantastic and I wonder before we kind of dive into what 
kind of us secondary school teachers will be expecting in September. Yeah. Yeah. You could first just give us a bit of a an outline, obviously with your experience. How what have been kind of some of the big changes to the way maths has been taught in primary school? And I'm particularly interested, Rachel, in in mastery because mastery is something that we've touched upon in this in this podcast over the last couple of years. But I get the sense that mastery is done particularly well in primary schools, and I'm just wondering. In your opinion, what, what has changed over the last couple of years um, uh, most significantly? Um, the way we, the way we sort of approach it, I think, and the speed in which we cover things. I think in the past it was very much here's what you need to cover, fly through it as quickly as possible, um, and we've really, really slowed it down now. So. Going back to what we said right at the beginning, covering one objective over a week, um, really making sure that we've got that depth of understanding and children haven't just got sort of that on the surface they can do it, but three weeks later you come back to it and it's all fallen out of the head. Um, We're spending much more time digging deeper, if you like, really making sure that they've got something before we move on. Really focusing in on these, I keep saying fluency reasoning, problem solving, um, really making sure that the children are working through those different steps. Um, A lot of what we used to do before the change in the curriculum was if someone was doing particularly well, so I talked about the high flyers before, you would just go, oh, we'll just move them on to next year's objectives. You know, they've got that now in in year five. So just just do year six stuff with them. Um, So that's a massive change. There's none of that now whatsoever. There's no dipping into the year group above. It's all, well, they need to do it at a greater depth then. They need to be tackling problems um, that are much more complex as opposed to just using bigger numbers, say. Yes. Um, What other things have changed? I think... Sort of at our school, we're evolving with this mixed ability um, sort of idea. I think that's a massive change for a lot of people. I think in the past, you used to have, you'd have them put into four groups, uh, and you'd almost sometimes be teaching four separate lessons within a lesson, because they'd be all at such different stages. Um, A lot of the time, you grouped your low ability together, and they worked with a TA, so then you find that those children are totally reliant on a TA. They will just sit there and do nothing until a TA comes along. Um, so that's been a massive change. Uh, lots of teachers used to send the low ability children out for the whole lesson. Um, so you'd find that um, th- they didn't really know those children very well because they were always saying, oh, well, they can't access what the rest of the children are doing. So they can go out, they can work at their own level and... They weren't ever really getting any teacher input. Um, we, we sort of decided the rule was no children go out unless it's for a quick five-minute burst. Shouldn't be groups of children out of a lesson for an hour, say. It's uh, not fair on them. They were sort of not being taught by a teacher, basically, a lot of them. Um, try to think of anything else. Um, can can I just ask on that, Rachel? Just uh, just a couple of things. You um you touched upon earlier that um you kind of yeah talked a little bit about differentiation in the sense that 
kids are all being given the same task um, yeah. to, to do now whereas in the past as you say maybe you're teaching four different lessons and yeah. um, i'm absolutely obsessed with differentiation um is it the case that you're essentially differentiating by the time kids are spending on each task so that all students are starting off at the same place some students may need a little bit longer than others to go through so for those kids who finish faster you've got to slip a paper up your sleeve with the next yes. kind of problem on but crucially it's not the case that this kid is getting worksheet one whereas this kid, kid is starting off on worksheet three everyone's yes. starting in the same place and the yes. differentiation happens by time is that yes right? i would say so yeah and I suppose, yeah, the time it takes them to get through something and also they might have obviously some support, some intervention. Um, but yeah, it's gone other days, like you say, where you would go, right, this group's doing worksheet one, this group's doing worksheet two, this group. So in, in that sense, every child has got the opportunity to achieve yes. higher, if you like. So you're not putting a ceiling on it. You know, at one point in the past, you would say, right, you do worksheet one, and then when you finished, you finished, well done. They never had the opportunity to move on to worksheet two or three or four. Um, whereas now, every child's starting on a level playing field, and they have the, the potential to achieve as much as anyone else in the room. Because um, obviously, you can be low ability in one topic, but quite good in another. So that, that's how I found it's, it. it it's worked for those for all the children really but also then you've got the high flyers who are so sometimes um cocky with it you know and think oh well, i'm in the top group i can do it yes they then are almost sometimes are embarrassed to say they can't do something whereas working through in, at this speed and in this way they are, we are making sure that they have really got it before moving on to the harder stuff as well Got it. That make, that makes perfect sense. And the other thing, I, the other thing I just wanted to ask is, when I see mastery doing do, being done well in secondary school, um, it's often with with interleaving being a key part. So when when uh, people are studying, when when kids are studying fractions, um. This is a bad example, but but things like decimals and negative numbers will, will be will be interleaved and and tested within that topic of fractions. So so that prior content is never that far away. And um, is that something that that happens particularly in in well years five and year six? Do is prior knowledge woven into the current topic? And if so, how does that happen? Yeah, definitely. It's um, I suppose through that initial well your pre-assessment. Um, you might put some, you know, prior knowledge questions in there, um, but also in that sort of very first day, that very first introduction, you might just go back a little bit to the to the year group before, just to make sure that they're totally um, ready for the current year group um, sort of content. Um, but yeah, definitely, and we'd be yeah really making links all the time between topics, um, bringing in. You know, like you say, make, making links to your place value. Oh, I remember this place value chapter that links in here as well, and it links in there, and really interweaving everything Got as much as we possibly can, yeah. Got it. And the, the final thing I wanted to ask before we dive into into year sevens in September is um, you mentioned there was a pre-assessment on the Friday. Um, is there what happens with kind of a post-assessment? Oh, yeah. that yeah, <laughs> we do one. <laughs> got, uh, right. And what, when does that happen and, and how how regularly are kids assessed? Um, it would be. It, so, for example, it, 
depends on how long you're going to be spending on the topic. So this percentages one, um, I actually ended up spending two weeks on it. Um, so the end of unit assessment just comes at the end, basically. Whenever you finish, whenever you've got to a point where you think, right, we've covered everything, they would then be given this post-learning task uh, to do. Again, it's kind of, you know, your test situation. Um, and I really, really focus in on um, look at your score from before, look at your score at the end, how much progress have you made. It doesn't matter if you got zero to begin with, as long as you get one on the post learning assessment, then you have made progress and, and I'm happy with that. Um, and it's the same process. They would do it by themselves and then we'd go through it together, mark those together. If you got to the point then where um, I always just do it out of 10 just for ease of, you know, keeping up with the marks and turning it into a percentage and things. If I found that some children at the end were only coming out with one or two marks, those children would then form a booster group and they would come in before school or something to actually go back over some of that content to reiterate it and... Um, almost like redo it but just in a small group setting uh, before school and things um, and then so really they've been tested once but some sort of test each week I would say in year six whether that's the formal sort of post learning assessment task or whether it's a mental maths test or something there is some form of you are working independently on your own and it's silent working every single week. And just on, just on that, Rachel, um, because I, I, I'm I'm growing to be a big, big fan of testing and specifically low, low <laughs> stakes, low stakes tests. Yeah. Do you, and, and I'm sensing that your tests are more of the low stakes variety. Yeah, and I yeah, just yeah. wonder, I just wonder, did the. Do you experience kids having maths anxiety or, or being nervous in taking these tests? And if not, how have you overcome that? Is it merely just the regularity of the test or is it is it something about the way that pre they're presented that kids aren't scared of doing them? Um, I, think, I think it's a bit of both. We do it so often that it just becomes second nature. They actually like it. They like the test. Um, they like to, they like the challenge of beating their own score. Um, and I, th I think the way I've presented it to them is, you know, it doesn't matter. We're not looking for 10 out of 10. It, you know, we're looking for progress. I've really, really made that clear throughout the year to them that it isn't the, the score you get. It's the improvement that you've made. Um, and what you need to do to improve is more important than, than the number you got. Um, and I suppose right at the beginning of the year, I had a couple whose parents oh, were quite nervous, worried about SATs and this, that and the other. And I said, well, they don't need to worry because we are going to do so much practicing as part of our weekly maths that by the time it comes to doing the actual SATs, the, the work, it'll just be like a normal lesson. Yes. Um, and, and, and that's, I think, how we've overcome it. And when it did come to the actual stats, the children who I did think, oh, we might have a few, you know, wobbles that were absolutely fine. They were all up for it. They were all raring to go and just really, really wanted to prove what they could do. I think I've always made that really clear to them. It's about what you can do and as long as you're doing your best and all that kind of thing. 
Got it. And again, just just as a little off on a tangent here, are, are sats a good thing in year six? Would you would you if you had your way, would you get rid of them or are you happy? Yeah, with them? no, I'd get rid of them. <laughs> oh, would you? All right, I didn't no, see I that think, coming. I like the idea of. I think there's too much emphasis put on the scores and the data. Right. Uh, as a school, you know. Yes. The, the, the children, it's quite nice to know how well they've done, and you know. I, I did a test at the beginning of the year with them, uh, and it's nice to see how much they've come on and how much progress they've made. But then I think the emphasis is, is just too much emphasis on this. That you know they've got to get so much consent, and that we as a school we've got to get national, yes. and it, it, there's a lot of pressure there. And I've just tried to make sure that that pressure's not gone on to the children, um, but. A lot of time is spent revising and going over test papers when actually you could be doing, you know, other things. I think it very much is a test year. It's not just the SATs week in May. You are building up to that throughout the year. And I suppose it depends on the teachers to how fun they make it along the way. Um, So I don't, I'm a bit sort of, I like, I like them, but I don't like the pressure it puts on staff. I think that's yeah. I, th- I, think, it's, I, it. I think it's similar to, to to me with GCSEs. I like. I mean, some some of the Sats questions that I've seen. There's some beautiful questions, right? There's some wonderful questions um, within within those Sats, and le- likewise with GCSE. But I just wonder as well. I know I keep saying I'm going to move on, but there's so many things I want to ask you, Rachel. Um, is it the case that kids are getting SATs papers to practice often like they do in year 11 for GCSE pretty much from the start of year six or is it something where oh, yeah yeah from yeah. The start. yeah right um, okay yeah it within the first week of them coming into year six I gave them the um previous year's paper to do yes <laughs> yeah which is probably really mean but I wanted to see how how far away they were from passing if you like um and i didn't tell them the scores or anything i just used it as um this is just to show you what we're aiming for and it doesn't matter if you don't get any right because my job is to teach you um the content and things throughout the course of the year um and then every half term we do some form of big booklet test, if you like, where we go sit in the hall and do it in exam conditions. Um, we use the White Rose Hub assessments at the end of each term, but then also I didn't, I didn't weave a couple of past stats papers as well, so that they'd had a really good crack at quite a few papers. Um, plus that helped me with my target setting and things as well. And it, you know, it helped me to. I analysed each one and it helped me to identify gaps that we had as a class so that then I could address those gaps that we had as a class. So, yeah, there's quite a lot of testing does go on in six. Um, and I don't think it's just our school. I do think from talking oh, no. to this year six teachers, you know, it's not just me that's done it like that. It's 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 everybody. And, and do you think, and I, I promise, and, and tell tell me off if I don't, because this is the last question before I move on to, to year yeah. seven. But, but do, do you, would the kids be better mathematicians by the end of year six if they didn't have to do the SATs? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. It's hard to say, isn't it? Um, 
I mean, does it detract from some of the maths that you want oh, to do? Or, or does does the testing have extra benefits and help kind of focus the year group? I think it does help them to focus. And it also helps you as a teacher to make sure you've covered everything. So I know I talked before about saying, oh, if it takes them two weeks, we'll take two weeks on it. But I'd, I'd be mindful that I can't spend six yes. weeks on one objective, you know, whereas, and I think, you know, some other year groups, you know, when I've chatted to other teachers, they go, oh, well, I haven't covered that, that. I haven't covered that yet, I haven't covered that yet. And I'm like, well, we've got two weeks left, when are you going to cover it? You know, <laughs> I think you are, it makes you make sure you've covered everything, basically. Um, and it also makes you very analytical and um, I suppose as well, sometimes you might think, I, I don't think you cover everything in, in as much depth. So if you've been through a paper and you know, mm, there aren't really many questions on ratio, therefore I'll just spend one week on ratio, do you, do you see? Whereas yes. fractions, I know there's millions of questions on fractions. We're going to do a lot of work on fractions. Yes. Um, so, in answer to your question, I really don't know if they're the better mathematicians. I think some of them would. And I think some of them, I think it depends on their attitude and the mindset. I think if you've got that growth mindset, you're going to be a good mathematician no matter what. I think if you've got, you know, that mindset of, oh, can't be bothered and not really first then the test does help to focus those children. Got it. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, right. Well, so let, let's crack on now with um, with year sevens in September, because I'm particularly interested in you just, if possible, Rachel, just giving us an overview of some of the things that year sixes will have will have covered throughout that year. And I don't know whether you just want to pick out a couple of topics or I can I can chuck a few your way. But what I mean, you've already kind of touched upon some quite high level percentage so finding 17 and a half percent mentally and so on that kids will be able to do what what else what else can kids in year six do they do <laughs> well, <laughs> i'd like to do everything well i mean i suppose if i keep talking about the white rose schemes of work but because we use those the children have covered everything on the year six scheme of work um, but I know obviously that different primary schools will have used different schemes. Um, but let me, I've got it here up in front of me. Well, could I maybe give you a couple of examples? On, so, yeah. for, for example, with them, um, let, let's take fractions first. Um, how far would kids have gone with fractions? Could they, for example, would they recognise equivalent fractions? Would they be able to add fractions with yes. different denominators? How far can they go with fractions? They can um, they'd be able to simplify fractions. Um, they'd be able to compare and order fractions with different denominators. Um, they'd be able to add and subtract um, with different denominators. And some will be able to multiply and divide as well. Flipping out. So division the fractions as well is in the mix. Yeah. So the, obviously you're going to have some children who are at the level of just adding and subtracting with the same denominator. But then you are going to have those children who can do the multiplication and division as well. And what about um, what about something like ratio, for example, you mentioned? Well, what, what will kids be able to do there? Can they uh, find equivalent ratios? Can they share quantities in a ratio? Um, yeah, they will have touched on some. They'll, they'll know about using ratio to help them sort of work out a scale factor and things like that. Um, 
they'll be able to use relative size of two quantities to sort of work out um, missing values and things like that, uh, using the multiplication and division facts. Uh, they will be able to solve some simple problems, as in, there's, there's always those where it's like a string of bees and things like that. And if you've got 10 green beads, how many orange beads will you need? They'll be able to do things like that. They do it quite um, visually, though. I would expect them to potentially draw things to help them, some of them. Um, but they won't have covered as much. So I'm, ju I'm just looking at it now, and you're looking at two weeks on ratio max, and that would be a very quick whiz through yes. ratio yeah um and can i can i ask as well and again i hope you don't mind me doing it this way but basically i'm i'm looking at our year seven scheme of work whilst i'm right. asking this and just 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 wanting to get a sense of how much kids have covered so what about something like a, a geometry topic like area and perimeter what kind of shapes would kids be able to find the area of or will have potentially covered um they will have done area and perimeter obviously of just rectangles squares um triangles they will have worked out that. They will know some of them, the formula to use to work out the area of a triangle. Um, that's about as far as you get, though, with that. You wouldn't have gone into any other shapes. Um, and, and what I'm going to do for, for teachers listening here, I'm going to ask Rachel to provide us a link to, to the document that Rachel's looking at, just so, um, again, we, we can kind of compare where kids are up to. But the last one I'd like to, last one I'd like to ask you, Rachel, is kind of the, the big one, really, is, is algebra. What, what have kids experienced in algebra in year six? Um, they ha will have done two to three weeks, I would say, on algebra. Uh, they've used quite simple formulas. Um they would be able to um, find pairs of numbers that satisfy an equation. Uh, what else have we got here? Generate and describe number sequences. Um, again, that is really going to depend on the ability of the child, though. There'll be some children who really don't get the fact that a letter represents a value, and then there'll be other children who get it quite quickly. Um, but they will have had some access to it. It just depends how much they've retained, if you like, with that. Uh, Got it. Yeah. In theory, nope. they would have done that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what they can remember. Of course. Um, and I wonder, kind of moving away from content, you, you've discussed... Um, that kids are solving quite complex problems and in fact problem solving um, or reasoning or whatever label we give to it is, yes. is kind of an integral part of every lesson so would you say are kids pretty competent both problem solvers and kind of independent problem solvers by the time they finish year six do they tend to look at unfamiliar problems and not be scared by them but but willing to kind of have a go and, and call upon lots of different knowledge and techniques to, to solve them yeah, again, I think that really depends on the mindset. There'll be some children who look at it and just go, oh, I can't do it, I can't, you know, it's, there's too much there to, to pick apart. And then there'll be other children who really quite confidently know what other areas of maths to yes. use to help them to solve that problem. Um, and the, the, the good at discussing it, I think, and talking to each other about it and trying things out, they're not... They're not frightened anymore of having a go and getting it wrong. I think maybe that's down to our school and, and the emphasis that we've put on making mistakes and 
um, the emphasis that we've put on perseverance and resilience, the fact that if you make a mistake, it's fine. You know, sometimes they can be, they could spend a whole lesson just on one problem because they're determined to get to the end of it or there'll be children who want to stay in a break to finish it because it's frustrating them, I think. You know, and I think that does depend on the mindset. Obviously, there'll be some kids who couldn't care less, but there are definitely definitely some children out there who, who will go into secondary school loving the problem-solving, the challenge of it. Um, I think sometimes the lower-down school, people still see think problem-solving is a word problem. Um, we've still got, you know, teachers who think, yeah, yeah, we do loads of problem-solving, but actually it's just a word problem disguising some really simple fluid. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think as we're moving through the new curriculum, you are getting uh, teachers with a better understanding of problem solving. And I think you will be getting children coming up into year seven that have that, 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 that um, what's the word, sort of willingness to tackle it. They're not scared by them. And they do know what other areas of maths to draw in and they can really sort of pick that out and see those links. Um, but as with anything, it's going to be a, a, a mixed bag. Um, and can I ask as well, and the style of teaching that kids are used to. So there's a big, I mean, for years there's been a big debate, but it's really hotting up over the last year or so on Twitter for, for secondary about kind of explicit instruction versus more kind of constructivist inquiry forms where it's more student led as opposed to teacher led. Is the is the what does it tend to be at primary? Is it is it more explicit? Is it more student led? Is it a mixture of the two? What what will kids be? How how will kids be expecting to be taught maths? I think you've still got to have you're still going to have to have some teacher led, obviously, because there will be those children who you say, right, go and explore, and they just sit there and don't know where to start. Um, but I do think now they are more able to question each other and they are able to take sort of an element of maths and pick it apart a little bit more be a little bit more creative with it you know the the, those sort of questions that you see on the stats papers where you're given um the calculation and the answer to it and you say so you've got this question you've got the answer now can you work out this calculation and it's very similar but the numbers are you know just slightly different um they are they are able to see those links now. They are able to explore themselves. Um, you know, some, for some children, you could they could spend a whole lesson on something like that. You know, if you know the answer to this question, what other questions do you know the answer to? They'd spend all day trying to suss out <laughs> the most complicated ones. And um, but I do still think they need that initial direction from the teacher, um, and they need that. They wouldn't be expecting, though, to just complete pages and pages of calculations or anything like that. Um, you know, we've sort of moved on from that. There's, when work scrutiny and things are going on and outsiders are coming in to look at what we're doing in terms of sort of school improvement partners and things, that there really is, we are pulled up for that. You know, if there's a page of calculations that are all just ticked, why are they all just ticked? It's clearly too easy for them to know what they're doing. So they are expecting to maybe do a few of those that they know, but then they're expecting to see calcula calculations being varied um, and presented to them in different ways. 
they are expecting to have the reasoning, they are expecting to explain their answers, and they're expecting to do those explanations in written form as well as verbally. Um, and they will be expecting problem solving where they are left on their own, and you just have to get on with it. Got it. And just again, just on a practical level, what what homeworks will they be expecting to do in maths? Um, in year six, the homeworks are very much worksheet based, which is very much how we don't teach anymore. Um, but at the moment, um, parents like the worksheet based homework. Um, we have gone down the route before of sending home maybe a maths challenge or something. Um, where it might be quite open-ended and and parents don't really like them. They like the fact that they can sit down on their own, complete a sheet, and they can help them um, if if need be. So in year six, very much, whatever we've been learning that week, a sheet will go home that will consolidate that learning and just sort of get them to practice. Um, I'd be tempted to differentiate a little bit there on the homework, so I might have two or three sheets so that when you're sending it home, say, for your higher ability ones, they're not completing something that's way too easy for them. Um, but I think one of, if I'd have been staying at school, that would have been one of my aims for this coming year would be to get parents more involved in changing the homework, I think. Um, and and I, th- I think sometimes parents were a little bit scared of the maths because they didn't like it themselves or don't have very good memories of maths from school a bit like I said you know it was just working through a workbook um and I would have wanted to pull them in more to to that discussion and to change the sort of homework um process um they would also have done lots of practice papers and things sent those home um but very different to how they're taught in school if you know what I mean Yes, got it. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to ask you a a, a tricky question now, uh, Rachel, um, and feel free to answer this however you want. But um, I just want your insight on this. uh, If you could design what that first term or first few weeks or even first few lessons of year seven would look like from the perspective of a year six child to give them the best possible start and the most appropriate start, what, what what should it look like, in your opinion? Um, I think it should be fun, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. No tests. <laughs> These kids are tested to the max in year six. They really are. And I'd avoid any sort of testing that's very formal. I'd probably do a baseline test, which I'm guessing uh, secondary schools do. Um, but I really, really would show the kids that maths is fun. Um, they're really, really expecting it to be hard. That's the, a lot of children are panicking about it. You know, oh, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. And I've, over this year, I've I've shown them um, secondary maths. You know, little snippets of secondary maths, and said, right, I want you to have a go at this, and let them do it, and then say, right, that's from year eight or something. And you know, they think it's fantastic that they can do it. Um, when I was on some recent training myself. At the White Rose Hub, they showed us a question that was on a GCSE paper, and I was like, my kids can do that. It was <laughs> finding out a missing angle in a triangle or something. And I went back to school the next day and I showed them it and I said, could you do this? And they went, yeah. And they explained how they'd do it and I said, that's on a GCSE paper. And they were all like, oh, leave it, I can't believe it, you know, how clever are we? Um, so <laughs> I think 
I think they need to see that it, it's not going to be totally above them. And I do think things like having maths fun days and things like that, I think get them sort of exploring, being creative with the maths. In the past, we've had um, children from the high school, year seven children from the high school come down to us, to, to the primary school, and actually they've created activities and things for the children to do down in primary, and I thought that worked really, really well. Um, some of the most interesting things I've learned about children is asking them to teach a lesson. Um, after SATs, that was one of the things I got them to do. I said, right, you've got um, a couple of days. I want you to plan a lesson that you're going to teach someone else. I gave them, you know, the objectives for the year. I gave them laptops and I said, right, you're going to plan and teach a lesson to someone in this class. And that was amazing. You could to, to really see how much they understood the topic because they were teaching it themselves um, and seeing them writing their own steps to success and, and really understanding what process another child had had to go through in order to achieve an objective. That was probably one of the most interesting insights into what they knew. Um, and I think maybe year sevens doing things like that, maybe being able to come down to the primary school and, and, and teach a lesson to a year four child or something. Um, just really showing them that it's fun and nothing to be scared of. It's not all about testing um, and uh, letting them loose a little bit with their creativity. I think that would be a nice start into secondary maths for them. That, yeah, if that, I that's could a, do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a brilliant idea. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I wonder... If you were a secondary teacher, Rachel, and you, you saw in your scheme of work, for example, um, first first autumn half term, uh, one week on factors and multiples, you've got to teach your year sevens. And you, knowing what you know, um, being a primary school teacher, you know that kids are pretty good when it comes to factors and multiples. How would how should a year seven teacher approach that topic? Because I'm assuming if they assume kids know nothing it's going to be a bit of a disaster but if they assume kids know everything and are completely fluent about uh, in it it's going to be a bit of a disaster as well so what what should year seven teachers do with all these topics that have been covered in primary school i've just said don't do much testing but i think some <laughs> sort of pre pre-assessment task or quiz or something just to get a feel of their knowledge um, just recapping the, the, the key vocabulary there will be children who mix up which is a factor which is a multiple um, so sort of just going back over the basics um, but I suppose in the way that I teach a lesson you know the fact that I think I know what they know um, but having something starting quite basic but moving quite quickly into something that involves more reasoning and problem solving um i, I sort of that, that's the only way i tackle it the way i know how if you know what i mean yeah a little bit no, of good. assessment but i don't know pitching it quite low to begin with but then having things ready for those children especially the sort of more able having some greater depth problems and things that they can be sort of tackling independently while you're sort of mopping up those children that have just totally forgotten which, which yes. is which <laughs> I think no, that's that, the key 
Perfect. And um, last couple before I kind of hand it over to you just to reflect. I just want to talk a little bit more about transition. Um, You've mentioned a couple of um, really nice ideas there, particularly likes that get in the year sevens to come into primary and to teach lessons as well. Are there any kind of best practices that you've seen for ensuring that transition from year six to year seven runs as smoothly as it can do? I've only had one year in year six. I've only got this year's to work on really I haven't seen any different transition other than what I've seen this year um but the sort of only transition that we've been involved in is the myself meeting with the year seven teacher uh, sorry manager and we, we did discuss each child individually and I gave them my teacher assessments and um we did have extra tan- transition days from our vulnerable pupils so that was so that was my input you know I could say I think this child this child this child needs more uh, a little bit more transition but it wasn't specifically just focusing on maths it was focusing on everything and you've got sort of an hour an hour and a half meeting to discuss everything so (laughs) don't feel that that they will know the children's gaps or anything you know it was very much a quick what are they like, what what level are they, you know, it was sort of quite a quick process really um, and I think it would have been probably a little bit more useful for us to have had longer I suppose, I know everybody's got so many other things to do uh, but to have a little bit longer to discuss the gaps maybe and, and, and their, their abilities in a bit more detail um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That's the only transition I've been involved in, so I can't really say which is which works best because that's the only one I've had. No, that's that's, that's yeah. perfect. And um, and last question before I I get you to to reflect. Um, we're going to have a lot of secondary school teachers kind of listening listening to this and who are and also um, a lot of teachers newly qualified teachers who will be teaching lessons for the first time in September and potentially their first ever lesson may well be some year sevens I just wonder do you have any advice for teachers who are teaching year seven I mean you've covered so much so far Rachel already but I just wonder if there was any little nuggets that that you would kind of pass on to teachers any pearls of wisdom to help them just teach their year seven students better i think what they need to do is to find out from the primary school what sort of equipment they would have used um because there are there are children who will automatically need um you know place value counters or quiz and air rods and they will use those as a matter of course to support their learning so i think it would be useful for those to be available for children as they move into year seven if they've been used to using that sort of equipment and then it's not there um that potentially could knock the confidence quite a bit um could, just on that rachel because that's yes. something i'm I re- thank god you brought this up because I, I forgot to ask you that um if we just give us a little rundown of, of some of the equipment so uh, quiz and errors do you make quite a lot of use of those across different different topics in maths and um, i would say that i've not made as much use as i could have done and i think a lot of this comes down to I suppose our lack of knowledge maybe as a school. So it's only been this year that we've started talking about the concrete, pictorial and abstract. 
and the fact that children throughout school still need that concrete equipment there to support them and I think because as a school in the past and probably not just us you know as, as, a, as a key stage two in the past we've thought you know oh, they don't need equipment they should be able to do it without equipment um, so a lot of the kids now in year six will have not touched any equipment for, for a few years um, but I think we will find as time goes on that the year six children will come up to high schools needing this equipment more often than not so um, I've used the Cuisinair rods um, this year in particular when we were doing ratio um, and I used it, I used them when we were doing um, fractions and things like that. Um, place value counters we've used quite a lot um, and especially with some of the lower, lower children using the place value counters to sort of model that exchanging and things when you're doing um, addition and subtraction um, and they've also used place, the, the decimal place value counters as well um, but I think depending on the primary school and how far along the journey they are of using concrete pictorial and abstract you would find different children needing different equipment so it could potentially, obviously, if you've got lots of feeder schools, you could have some children who are totally reliant on the equipment and other children who have never seen the equipment before. So um, I think that's going to probably maybe change over the next few years as that start filters, sort of filters through a little bit more into primary schools or higher up in primary schools, definitely. Can I ask on that as well, just a related question, Rachel, um, just about the different um, approaches and students will use to do different things. So uh, just in the first instance, something like um, multiplicate, written multiplication, will there be a prescribed way that they will do that? Um, they will. I suppose it'll depend on the school's calculation policy. But for our school, um, they all are using the formal uh, methods of sh uh, short and long multiplication. Um and what will that be? Will they? Will that be grids, or will it be kind of uh, grid method, or will it be just it'll have moved standard on how I... from grid method? So it'll be you know the standard. What do you call it? <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> where you ca put, carry the zero, you know. Yes. Zero. Yeah. 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 The, <laughs> yeah. the way I used to do it. That's yeah, good. <laughs> I like that. And, and that old because I remember when I first started teaching, kids were coming in doing. Um, I mean, some people call it Chinese multiplication or Napier's bones or whatever, with the diagonal lines going across. Oh the yeah, it's, I don't get that. <laughs> right. Perfect. Ideal. So, but will it be the case that? Um, like that still could be taught in primary schools. It's not the case yeah. that there are right. So it's, there's no prescribed way that kids have to be taught no, long multiplication or the division best or something. Thing to do there is to ask the year six teachers to look at their calculation policy, so you will know what methods they have been taught. Yes. Um, because I suppose I'm trying to think. I would have thought that mostly now they'll have moved on from grid method, but there still will be some children who use the grid method for multiplication. Um, there might even still be some children who are just doing it as repeated addition, you know, as, as, as long-winded as that may sound. Uh, there might be some children still at that level. Um, well, that, 
but, but looking at the calculation policy, that's really that's really sound advice. That and I won I wonder as well. That and last last question from me um, on this is um, ratio. So I, I I know White Rose does a lot of things on them um, on the on bar modeling for for teaching ratio. Would that be something that primary school teachers would they have been brought up on a diet of bar modeling? Would they, and would they be expecting to take on a topic such as ratio and even fractions using a bar modeling approach? Um, again, that will totally depend on the school. That's a good point, actually, because um, us as a school, um, we've done a little bit of bar modelling, but nobody's ever had the official bar modelling training. So we're all kind of at the start of the process of using bar modelling. Um, so we use it a lot to work out the difference and things like that. I find that really useful. Uh, using a bar to, to sort of show the difference between two numbers uh, and I have used it to you uh, when we were working out percentages um, but again that is going to really be dependent on, on the school and the journey that they're on um, if they have been following the white rose um, or, or other hubs schemes of work chances are they will be using the bar modeling but again it's that is definitely something that as a year seven teacher would be worth asking uh, the year sixes because if they come in using bar models and you're not quite sure how to um follow that up um it's worth getting a bit of training i think flipping it yeah you're absolutely right this is uh yeah making lots of notes for things i need to do here this is this is superbness um can i can i ask just just to finish rachel just on on some reflections so um firstly are there any um any books you'd recommend teachers should read and this may be um kind of based on primary teaching or it may just be general education books that you found useful any any recommendations i think if um <laughs> I think if you ask the teacher to read a book, they might hit you over the head with it. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, but no. Um, I think personally myself, um, because of where I am in my career and because I'm a maths leader and because, you know, I was wanting to progress into maths, I have done reading myself. Um, books by Joe Bowler um, I found to be really, really insightful um mathematical mindsets in particular i'm just sort of working my way through that one at the moment i've found some really really invaluable stuff in there um a slightly easier read i think is a dan hesler book um and that's called school of thought that's more a collection of sort of essays and blog posts and random thought bubbles and things so it's a it's quite a quick read if you if you wanting to um in particular looking at developing growth mindset within school that's that's a really good one um to pick up and read i'd say within a couple of days you know it's a dead quick one uh, the joe bowler ones tend to be longer um but they have got a lot of good stuff in there um but I think, yeah, a lot of people would be saying, I ain't got time to read about it. <laughs> it's <laughs> <Of> fine. <course. laughs> it's, it's tricky. It's tricky, isn't it? Because it's only, um, I've I've had a, a kind of a lot lighter teaching load um, this year. I've been very fortunate and I've had time, time to read. And it's so frustrating, right? Because 
I just think if I'd have read some of these things earlier on in my teaching career, I would have done things completely differently and completely better. But it's you just you just simply don't have time, right? It is so frustrating. It, it is because you kind of just get swamped by yep. the planning and the marking and the assessment and the well, you know the creating steps to success and getting <laughs> yeah, this and plans and screens and and I think you know by. 10 o'clock at night when people are putting the laptops away, they just probably want to read a magazine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not you're a abso- I, No, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. <laughs> but absolutely I don't think right. summer's a good time to maybe have a little, you know, dabble in the odd <laughs> educational book if you're uh, that way inclined. But definitely the Joe <laughs> Bowler books, I would suggest. And I have learned, I've learned a lot this year about growth mindset. Um, say I've been teaching for 16 years. There are things that I've read and come across this year that I thought, oh, God, how obvious is that? And I've not been doing it for 16 years. So, yeah. Does, does it, is there anything particular that springs to mind there, Rachel, on that? Any kind of key takeaways on mindsets? I think talking about the ability groups, that's been a biggie for me and trying that out, uh, as in not having ability groups, as in working within mixed abilities. I think um, the... The testing, I know testing is important and I know we've got to do it. And one thing that I've done this year is I've not emphasised the marks as much. What I've done when I've given children a test paper back is I've given them three points that they need to work on. This was something I picked up from the Dan Hesler book, actually. Um, So instead of saying you've scored 20 out of 30, it will say you need to work on this, this and this. And every child has got three points to work on. So they're not all doing that thing where they're looking around the room going, what mark have you got? What mark have you got? What have you got? What have you got? And the poor child who's got two out of 30 is sat there, you know, wanting the ground to swallow them up. They're looking at each other and going, oh, I've got three points on my sheet. They've got three points on their sheet. Oh, we've all got three points. That means we're all, you know, working at similar level or whatever. That's been really, really useful. And children have appreciated that. I have found that the children with a fixed mindset hate not knowing the scores. They hate it. And they hate the mixed ability because I think they've always known their position within the class. And there were a few children at the beginning of the year whose, you know, parents were coming in, oh, they're upset because they've moved group and da 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 <laughs> And I'm saying, we're not in groups anymore. Oh, right. Oh. You know, and they're so used to being in the top group that because they're not sat with other children, they think they've moved a group or they're not as clever as they were before or something. And tackling those mindsets has been um, it's been quite interesting, really. Um, and those children who, again, with the fixed mindset, who just will not entertain any reasoning problems at the beginning of the year, they were so, well, I've got the answer, why do I need to explain it? You know, I don't need to explain to you why I've got it, I know the answer. And those children now have moved on so much that they are over-explaining, if anything. You know, In the past, they wouldn't have written anything but the answer. They're now writing maybe a side of their book to explain how they did it. Gee, and how, how have you got them to, to, to that point, Rachel? Because that's a massive problem, yeah, that, right? Like, I, I find this... And is it, is it just showing them, like, kind of praising the kids who have well, explained it? Or is... Yeah, definitely. Um, having sentence starters and things just up on the working wall. Um, 
things just to get them going with that explanation or um just I think it's just the high expectations to be honest and yeah as you say to, to begin with it was always the, the, the high flyers no I know the answer I'm not explaining it that's the end of it or well can you show me another method no what's the point I've got the answer you know that, that, that was probably harder to overcome than, than some of the other things this year but I think having the high expectation and modeling it to them and showing them why it's important to be able to write that explanation um, has really helped and to see the difference now in, in their ability to do that is amazing and That's I think brilliant. one of the other things that I would have worked on if I was staying in school would be that progression in reasoning as well so um, it's not good enough to be able to just say I know the answer because and describe what you've done it's more moving on to the generalisations and proving your point and, and all of that I think we would have done a lot more work on that <laughs> fantastic and and the last question for me before i hand over to your big three um i wonder if there's anything you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now i mean you've mentioned mindsets being a big one is, is yeah. there anything else um i think the equipment is massive you know when when i start well i suppose when i first started i was in year one and year two so we used equipment anyway but the idea that by the end of year two they should be doing everything written down and shouldn't really be using equipment was quite big then you know and it was it was kind of only the, the kids who uh, were lower ability needed Numicon or whatever whereas now I think that the fact that I have seen year six children not really understand a topic such as ratio and then I've presented them with quiz and aerobs and by the end of it they're going oh I get it now you know I see the relationship between that and that um that that's been a a massive insight the fact that they need that equipment no matter what their ability um also the fact about maths being about depth and not speed and you know again there was always that emphasis on well if they've got it move them on to bigger numbers or move them on to the next year group or move them on to something harder the fact that it it's about broadening their understanding not just pushing it forward all the time and pushing it forward all the time they're sort of the two main things along with the growth mindset as well. That's superb, Rachel. Um, well, final thing for me is to hand over to you for your big three. So I wonder if there are three websites or blog posts or anything you want that you would direct listeners to. And I will include these on the show notes page. Um, quite sort of simple, really. Um, I tend to use the same things. And because we use Espresso, which has got a wealth of resources and ideas, that is something that you buy in as a school. I tend to use that one a lot. But other ones that I've used are Enrich. Um, always go back to Enrich to help with my problem solving. Um, I really like the fact on there that it's got the solutions and that children can post their solutions as well. Um, TES I use a lot, but in particular the links on there to the White Rose Hub. Um, the White Rose Hub website itself is quite difficult to navigate, but if you, they're, you, they're now sort of uh, putting everything out there through TES. So if you go on to TES and put in White Rose Hub schemes of work, um, they're at your fingertips uh, there to download um, quite quickly. And another one that I've used is one um, developed by Joe Bowler, the ucubed.org. Um, 
lots of activities on there, but there's also some good stuff on there around growth mindset. Um, and I've used some of the statements and things and that she's come up with with my children to help them to develop a growth mindset in maths in particular. So, yeah, that would be the three. That's what a superb choice that is. That's fantastic, Rachel. And all that's left for me to do is to firstly just thank you so much for your time today in the, in the middle of summer holidays when, when we're recording this. And secondly, just thank you for, for such a what I know is going to prove an invaluable insight. As a minimum, it's going to change the way I approach year seven. But I, I know it's going to give food for thought for all our listeners. Right. So, so, so thank you so, so much for that, Rachel. <laughs> So there you have it. There was my interview with primary school teacher Rachel Webster. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As ever, these interviews always give me so much food for thought and it's difficult to know exactly what to focus on in my takeaway. But I've gone for three things based on what Rachel said. Um, the first is reading books. Now when I asked Rachel what book she'd recommend... She laughed and she made the point that as if teachers have got any time to read books. And it, God, it's so sad, but so true. And it's only because I'm on a cushy number with school this year that I've got plenty of time to read books and plenty of time to read research papers. And it has flipping opened my eyes to a whole world of research and a whole world of ideas that I just never knew existed. And it's making me such a better teacher and it breaks my heart. And it's just so frustrating that as teachers, we are just so busy. And the last thing we've got time to do is to read books about our job that are going to make us enjoy our job and do it a lot better. So I'm going to say two things. The first is if you do have time to squeeze in the reading of one book, my personal choice will be Dan Williams' Why Don't Students Like School? It is flipping brilliant. And secondly, I'm trying to do my little bit with my research page. So if you go to mrbartonmaths.com forward slash teachers forward slash research, you'll find over a hundred research papers that I've summarized and given my takeaways to. So hopefully that's something you can dip in and dip out of whenever you've got a spare few moments. But look, I'm not living in some fantasy land here. I know that everyone is flipping snowed under with stuff. But if you do get a bit of chance, hopefully you'll find it useful. Secondly, whew, it really made me think just how many flipping unknowns as year seven teachers we have to deal with. And this isn't me as a secondary school teacher kind of begging for sympathy. Well, it is a little bit. But how many times did Rachel make the point that it depends what they've been taught at primary school? It depends what primary school they've been to. Now, at our school, we have maybe three main feeder primary schools, but we also get kids coming in from all over the show. And it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly how the kids have been taught. And there's so many variables, right? So how have they been taught different topics? How have they been taught to do long multiplication? How they've been taught to do ratio? What method have they been taught? What equipment have they used? Rachel made, uh, she was adamant how important the use of equipment is and how it's really transformed the way she teaches. Have kids been used to using equipment? Do we as teachers, as secondary teachers, need to get used to using this equipment to help help the students? How far have kids gone through different topics? Sure, like in Rachel's class there, she's writing some incredibly challenging problems for percentages that she shared with us. But have all students gone through that? How do we know? Now, one tip that Rachel gave, I think is absolutely brilliant, is to check the school's, uh, primary school's calculation policy. And um, that's something I've not thought to do. I feel flipping ashamed to say it. 
but I, that that's obviously the first the first step but there's a bigger issue at stake and that comes through to my final point that I just wanted to raise in this takeaway now I've I've said this at, at conferences that I've spoke at over the last couple of years and I've probably even said it on this podcast so apologies um, if I'm banging on like a broken record but I think the hardest part of teaching is when you have to teach something that kids have experienced before and year seven and year eight are crammed full of that look at your year seven schema work I guarantee you on there is going to be some kind of number operation stuff multiplication division and so on negative numbers are going to be on there area perimeter factors multiples ratio introduction to basic algebra kids have seen it all before now that doesn't mean they've mastered it and rachel was very clear on that point it doesn't mean they've all studied the exact same parts of it in the exact same ways but they're aware of it They've got a preconception about it. They've probably got some ideas whether they're good at it or bad at it, whether they like it or don't like it. And here's the point. If you introduce it as if kids have never seen it before, then that's got potential to be a disaster for the kids who have got it or the kids who think, oh God, not this again, I flipping ate this. But if you assume that kids have nailed it and kind of move on to the next level with it, then that could be a disaster as well because who's to say whether they had? Now, there's two ways of getting around this. First is some kind of assessment, as Rachel talked about. Now, whether that be a baseline assessment, whether it be something like the diagnostic questions that I'm obsessed with using, something to get an idea of where the learners are that we can build on. That's obviously crucial. But on top of that, it then comes down to the activities that we give students to do. Now, again, apologies if you've heard me bang on about this before, but I am obsessed with purposeful practice activities. And these are a special type of activity. They are not rich tasks or they're not just rich tasks. They're not open-ended investigations. But at the same time, it's not a case of banging through hundreds of the same questions on a worksheet. They, they are the kind of activities that help kids develop and enhance their procedural fluency but also help develop conceptual understanding and give them opportunities to problem solve and investigate and be creative. Now, Don Stewart and N. Rich are ideal for these, but not all the activities fit under this umbrella of purposeful practice. In fact, I've got quite strict criteria of what I consider to be a purposeful practice activity. Now, I've got great news. I have found a kindred spirit in this, Mr. Colin Foster. I flipping love his work. So I've arranged to have him on the show and we are going to go to town discussing purposeful practice and why we think it's such an important thing. So there's a little teaser um, for an episode in the future. But anyway, as I say, I really hope you enjoyed that one and I really hope it gave you an extra insight um, as to what goes in um, into math lessons in primary schools. And apologies if you knew all that before, but I, I flipping didn't. And I've visited primary schools, I've spoke to primary school teachers, but it was just fascinating to hear the complexity of the maths that they do, but also what they're expecting, what students are expecting their maths lessons to be like. And if we don't decide not to present maths lessons like that, then that's fine, but it's better to be aware that that is going to be a shift for the kids, and it's going to be a shift um, at a time when a lot of other things are changing in their lives. It's a new school environment. It might be daunting to them and so on. So removing another bit of consistency, we've just got to be aware of the effect that that's going to have on students. Anyway, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to Rachel for being an absolutely wonderful guest. And um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for providing the jazzy music throughout the show. And a big special thank you to all my loyal listeners. Um, as I say, it means the world to me that people listen to these and find them useful. If you get a chance to give us a review, that would be ideal. And I shall return with some more wonderful guests um, in the near future. And if you listen to this podcast at the end of summer and you're about to go back to school, I really hope the school year gets off to a great start. Take care of yourselves and bye for now.